Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. As a relaxing exercise, if you will, he would have each of his lieutenants preach his eulogy. This was a method that he would use to be comfortable, if you will, with having to confront the possibility of death. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, uh, how are you doing today? I'm good. I am excited. We're I doing know. one of our favorite kinds of episodes today. Yes. Yeah. So uh, w- this episode is uh, airing the day after uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And uh, so we have uh, one of our favorite, if not our favorite guest uh, coming on, who's been on the show uh, several times before. I think, uh, I think Derek, you might have the record along with maybe our partner, Jeff Harris, uh, of being on the show the most. Uh, and so let me just introduce to everybody, Derek Pope from the uh, Arc of Justice Institute and the Hidden Legal Figures podcast. Derek, how are you doing today? Doing good, Steve. Good to see you, Yvonne. And Tell your partner, Jeff, I'm coming for him. I'm trying to get that <laughs> That's right. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Derek Alexander Pope, DAP um, on GTP for MLK is A-OK. Yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's good. We should have started with that. Why didn't you tell me? I, I wanted to say great. it myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, that was, uh, that, that was, uh, that was very good. Um, well, uh, uh, Derek, uh, let me just uh, introduce or tell everybody, I was, I was, as I was saying, I think you've been on the show. I think this is your fourth time. And, and, uh, and once you're on for your fifth time, you'll get a special prize from us. I'm, I'm sure we're going to have to think of what it is, but, um, can't wait, but, uh, um, but Derek, as I said, is the uh, president and founding uh, director of the Arc of Justice Institute, uh, just a fantastic organization that, that, that he started, along with being the host of the Hidden Legal Figures podcast. Uh, prior to being with uh, the Arc of Justice Institute, uh, Derek had a long uh, legal career, long and, and storied uh, legal career. He is uh, was the chief of staff for the uh, chairman of the Fulton County Board of Commissioners, was legislative counsel to the Georgia General Assembly, and general counsel to the Medical Association of Georgia, as well as an adjunct professor at Georgia State University College of Law. Uh, and uh, during the Obama administration, I saw was, was part of the uh, White House data-driven uh, justice initiative. So, uh, and not only uh, Yvonne, as we were talking about before we came on the air, uh, is Derek, you know, just uh, inspiring a great lawyer and um, and a very uh, knowledgeable, a very creative mind to, to come up with all these ideas. Always just a, a great historian, especially when it comes to uh, to legal knowledge and, and the civil rights movement. But we also know now that he is an excellent uh, spotter of talent because uh, he has brought on to his podcast, Hidden Legal Figures Podcast, which everybody should check out, uh, a one very special uh, voice talent, voice actress uh, named Yvonne Godfrey. That's right. I've, I've made my debut. Um, I don't have an agent yet. So for now, I'm representing myself if anybody you know, wants to book me for some voice acting. But it was um, the bright spot of my of this whole sort of quarantine weird times was that I got to do some um, recording of very intimidating, very historic um, quotes for Derek's podcast. And it's just a really cool um, it's a really cool thing that 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 Derek is doing this season and how to in 
in mixing in sort of uh, different people who are reading these quotes and kind of getting across the context of the the historical moments that he's talking about. So anyway, it was it was hard. It was harder than I thought it was going to be, um, but it was really fun. Well, Derek, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing on this season of uh, Hidden Legal Figures podcast? This season, we are tracing the arc of the role that lawyers and judges played in the civil rights movement beginning in the Reconstruction period. Uh, first season focused on the role that lawyers and judges played during the traditionally understood time period of the civil rights movement early 1950s through the late 1960s, but every issue that the courts were addressing, that lawyers were litigating, that society was dealing with, had their roots in the Reconstruction period. Uh, and while during the first season, we were fortunate enough to be able to find and use archival audio footage from the Reconstruction era there are, there, that preceded recorded voicing. And so we had to figure out how, from a creative standpoint, to capture their voices. And we decided to use voice actors. And Yvonne let it slip in one of our conversations that she had been told that she had some talent in that particular area. And when <laughs> she said it, I'm thinking, okay, you have been drafted. And she did a yeoman's job. She's played, she's played three characters, three roles, Abraham Lincoln. And to the listeners who might be surprised at that, uh, why is why did we select a, fe a, a female to do Abraham Lincoln? The scholarship shows that, that President Lincoln had somewhat of a high-pitched voice. And we thought that as opposed to getting a male voice and trying to, from an audio standpoint, adjust the tone, why not just use a female voice to capture it from the, in that particular aspect? And it was also just an ironic twist. Yeah, I like it. The female voice for Abraham Lincoln. She also portrayed Maria Chandler. Uh, Ms. Chandler was a figure during that moment who wrote to Charles Sumner a letter, Senator Charles Sumner from Massachusetts, a letter um, espousing and the, the importance of extending the right to vote to women in 1867. And she also plays Susan B. Anthony, the, the, the noted suffragette yeah. uh, from that particular period. So Yvonne certainly did a magnificent job. And I can tell you that the, the difficult thing was when she, you know, she did a couple of takes like, like, like we asked her to, and it was just, you have to figure out, okay, she captured one mood in one take <laughs> and another mood, another takes. So we've got to figure out how, how do we get both moods in that particular aspect. So, but no, she did a great job. Uh, and I, I was blown away listening to it. I really was. I think it's a great idea. And, uh, and I have always said that, uh, one of the reasons why, uh, one of the many reasons why I'm glad that Yvonne is my, uh, my co-host on this is because she has a great radio voice. So, uh, well, thank you guys. I mean, this is, this is an episode we wanted to do in, in honor of MLK, but I feel like it's, it's been in honor of me. So, uh, <laughs> we can, have, we can have a little um, bit of Yvonne, uh, yeah. Yvonne, uh, honoring, uh, before we get to the great Martin. I'm, on, I'm honored to, sh to share this, uh, <laughs> this podcast yeah. with Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, and Derek, just to go back for one second, I know, I think we talked about this on the last time that we did one of these historical cases, but um, you know, I always thought it was interesting and I don't, I don't think I ever really understood it, but that, that um, I guess civil rights, as you would, as you would call it, sort of, you know, made pretty uh, 
great strides right after the Civil War. And then and then basically there was a, a period of, of tremendous backtracking where they instituted uh, all kinds of requirements on voting, you know, and very much stuff that we're talking about today about voter suppression, uh, instituting, you know, uh, essentially fees for, for voting and, and uh, reading requirements, things like that. And then, of course, uh, the Jim Crow laws that uh, that, that um, you know, suppressed African-Americans and, and people of color. Uh, for so many years. But I, I always thought that was an interesting part of history to un understand that, you know, like right after the Civil War, we actually, I think, had our highest amount of African-American legislators that were elected. Uh, and then and then there was, uh, uh, obviously, for a number of years, for, for many years, basically up until the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, just had a, a tremendous backtracking through Jim Crow and, and other uh, terrible laws. Correct. That period is so very interesting. Probably uh, the nation's foremost historian on the period, Eric Foner, says that there were four things happening during that moment that agitate our present political circumstances. The issue of citizenship, the issue of voting, the relationship between political and economic democracy, and most importantly, as he talks about, is the what to do with respect to the advent of domestic terrorism. And so those four things were, were, were the hallmarks of the Reconstruction period. They continued to play themselves out into the early part of the 19th, latter part of the 19th century, on into the 20th, 20th century. And as we have seen, sadly, they are still a part of our fabric of existence, even in the 21st century. And so at every step, there have been lawyers, judges, the work of the law, getting involved in ameliorating those conditions, at some point acting as the shepherd, as the guide to, to, to get people out of that chaos into a brighter aspect of day-to-day -day living and in sometimes playing companion. And so the, the work of the law and the work of its professionals has been a fascinating tale. And I'm just happy to be among those who are trying to bring that, uh, that, 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 that history and that story uh, to the forefront. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the great things that, that I love about the Hidden Legal Figures podcast, which is that, um, you know, lawyers get a bad rap and, and always have it. You know, we uh, a lot of parts of society don't like lawyers. And, and, and there's probably some reason for that. But if you look at change that's happened in society and change for the better, um, and bringing society forward. I mean, lawyers are uh, always at the forefront of that. And so um, so I think it's uh, an important thing to talk about. And, and the civil rights movement is obviously a, a hugely important thing to talk about. And, and, you know, where and it ties into where we are today. And, um, you know, and sometimes we think that we've made it far. And then, and then um, uh, without getting into politics, certain things happen. And, and, uh, and we realized we haven't made it as far as we as we thought we had. Well, uh, on that, so uh, <clears throat> let's talk about these two cases that uh, that we were talking about. So we so we're actually going to talk about two cases today. And uh, since it's Martin Luther King uh, uh, Jr. Uh, Day, a Junior Appreciation Day, um, we were going to talk about two cases involving uh, MLK and involving. Um, uh, the state of Alabama and uh, essentially some legal actions that they were bringing against uh, him uh, basically to stop or hinder uh, his work on civil rights. And um, uh, both 
very uh, interesting in their own way and uh, and very challenging. And it it really, I think, part of the, what we miss sometimes when we think about uh, the civil rights movement and and you know what Martin Luther King did is is how much you know, that he was being battled, not just, uh, you know, out on the street, not just in politics, but personally being dragged into courtrooms, uh, you know, quite often uh, in order to uh, stop him or slow him down from, uh, from uh, making change in this country. Yeah. Um, and um, Steve, not to interrupt you, but I just, in, in reading about these cases that Derek sent us, and every time Derek comes on the show, I'm always struck by the fact that like the first time you learn about Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement in school, it's sort of like this thing that you're learning about this, this, this larger than life person. And you know, you're, you're kind of learning it in one way, like, especially when you're in grade school and then some of the, the, the legal aspects of the case, you may learn again in law school. And at that point you're like kind of learning to memorize, you know, learning yeah. to, for whatever. And so what, what, what struck me every time that Derek comes on the, the podcast and when I'm reading about these cases again is exactly what you point out, which is more like just the facts of what really happened to this man and what he accomplished from a, from a different perspective of, you know, you're not learning it to pass the, you know, us history exam or, you know, some law school exam, you're just learning about it from the perspective of wanting to know. And it feels totally different. Like reading this stuff now, doing it for, for fun, for educational reasons, for the podcast is totally different than the other times that I sort of had an awareness of it, but was like focused on getting an A, you know? <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, the, the, both of the cases have the same name. They're both called State of Alabama versus Martin Luther King Jr. One, the first one was in 1956. Uh, the prosecution was in 1956. And then the second one was in 1960. Uh, we'll start with the one in 1956 first. Essentially, uh, after... Uh, uh, Rosa Parks uh, refused to give up her seat on uh, a Montgomery bus. Uh, the um, some of the citizens of, of Montgomery, uh, mostly from the African American churches, uh, started um, the uh, Montgomery Improvement Association, and Martin Luther King was chosen as their president. And uh, shortly thereafter, there was a, a boycott of the uh, Montgomery bus, very uh, obviously very famous in history. Um, so there was the boycott. And um, in Alabama in 1921, there had been a anti-boycott uh, law passed. And so Alabama decided to charge Martin Luther King, as well as uh, I believe about 89 other people uh, under this anti-boycotting law. Um, I, I think if I read right, I think Martin Luther King was the only one who was actually tried on the, uh, on, on the charge, but there were uh, a number of other charges brought. Um, and so, uh, basically, uh, this case was, was tried and I, and I, I thought it was interesting and we'll talk about, you know, some of the way that they, that they tried it, but, um, you know, the prosecution's case was that Martin Luther King was the leader and had encouraged people to, uh, to boycott and that, um, that there had also, um, been, uh, uh some violence that was, uh, 
from the prosecution standpoint, encouraged by uh, the Montgomery Improvement Association, including some of the bus drivers, I think, testified to shots being fired. Some of them testified as bricks being thrown through the windows. Um, they even had three uh, African-American witnesses that testified that they had been pulled off of buses by members of the uh, the uh, MIA. And... Um, and I guess, you know, one thing we should also remember when we're talking about both of these trials, you know, this is 1950s, 1960s Alabama. I mean, so we're talking about segregated courtrooms. We're talking about uh, white judges um, in the it sounds like Derek, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this first case. It sounded like there was no jury. It was just tried to the judge. That's correct. Both sides okay. agreed to let the judge be the finder of fact here. Okay. Okay. And then in the second case, which we'll talk about in a second was, was tried in front of a jury. Uh, but, but in all cases, uh, the, the judge and juries, uh, were all white. Um, so, you know, tremendous, uh, an uphill battle for, uh, Martin Luther King's, um, defense, his, the defense that they had in the case was sort of twofold from the way I read, which was that uh, one, that Martin Luther King wasn't the leader of the boycott, uh, in fact, had never told anybody specifically that they had to go boycott. He said he basically had preached, uh, leave it to their conscience. You know, if you feel like you want to ride the bus, then ride the bus. But if your conscience guides you to not ride the bus, then don't. Um, you know, and then the other other part of it uh, was that there was an exception to the 1921 anti-boycotting law that said if there was a just cause or a legal excuse for the boycott. And so basically, there, a lot of their defense uh, surrounded bringing in witnesses to show just uh, how unjust and, and, and uh, uh, I mean, dangerous, even violent um, it was for uh, African-Americans to ride on the Montgomery buses, in, including um, we'll, we'll, we can talk about this some more, but some specific stories of, of events that happened to people while they were on Montgomery buses. Um, ultimately, that case came out um, and uh, the judge uh, found against Martin Luther King and, uh, and uh, levied a $500 fine against him. Uh, that went up to the appeal. And I think there was some issue whether or not uh, the appeal was filed timely, but ultimately um, uh, Martin Luther King ended up paying the $500 fine uh, for it. Um, the second case, uh, which I thought was uh, interesting and in, in, in reading, I read one article on it, you know, was specifically brought in order to try and uh, sideline, I guess, if, you know, a lack of a better word, the sideline one of the leaders of the civil rights movement. Uh, that had been pressed by the um, the segregationist governor John Patterson, um, where they basically were trying to claim that that um, that uh, Dr. King had underpaid his taxes uh, in both 1956 and in um, 1958 uh, in, by underreporting funds he had received from one the uh, Montgomery Improvement Association and then from the um, Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Uh, in 1958, and the one of the things I thought was interesting was that instead of charging him under a uh, tax evasion law, which would have been a misdemeanor in Alabama, they decided to charge him with perjury for uh, not uh, filing, you know, basically a fraudulent tax return, and that was a felony, uh, and that carried a sentence up to 10 years in prison, and so was seeking. Uh, major uh, uh, jail time. And, and from what I understand, um, it was really uh, taxing and, and really difficult for, for Dr. King 
because not only did he realize he was facing this serious charge, but it was also questioning his uh, his honesty. Um, you know, and of course, he he was going in front of a, a a white judge, an all white jury, and didn't think that his chances were very good. In that case, he was found not guilty by the all white jury uh, who deliberated for about four four hours. And um, by all accounts, I think even uh, Dr. King and his legal team were stunned by the result, but um, but got that tr- that tremendous re- result, and he was found uh, not guilty in that case. So that that's sort of a broad, quick overview of those two cases uh, that we're going to talk about in this case, and then and then um, and just generally about some of the other legal uh, battles that that Dr. King had during the civil rights movement. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me, and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah, so what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into Legal Technology Services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com, Legal Technology Services. Uh, give them a try. So I I have a question, Um, you know, we've kind of given an overview about, about the the cases that we're going to talk about, but, but particularly with the, um, you know, the, the boycotting of, of the Montgomery buses and this anti-boycotting act, if I ever knew about, if I ever learned about that anti-boycotting act, I forgot it, or I learned it at a time when I didn't understand what potting really was like if I learned about it in high school because I'm interested in the context of where that act came from in the first place because it seems like boycotting you know to me is is just one of the ways that you know if you're if you feel like a business has treated somebody unfairly or or whatever it seems like one of the one of the peaceful ways or one of the ways you can make your voice heard. And so one of the context of where that act come, came from, whether, whether when it was enacted, it had to do with, um, you know, sort of um, race relations or if it was to address something else. 
Well, and I guess to add to that, uh, um, Derek, before you answer, is um, is whether or not that was just specific to Alabama, because my guess is that since it came out of the the early 1920s is probably focused more on unions and um, and what was going on in the labor movement as far as, uh, you know, whether or not uh, Mm -hmm. people boycotted, especially if it was more of a nationwide thing. But I agree with Yvonne. I had not heard of the anti-boycotting type, you know, laws like that. That's right. That's right. It was not unique to Alabama and it was in response to unions organizing. It was designed to discourage any type of union organizing, as you point out, Steve, in response to the burgeoning labor movement at that particular moment. That Alabama statute was enacted first in 1921 and it was targeted at a particular company. And what was taking place at that particular moment is people were having the, 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 the conscience raised in terms of the fair treatment of workers, fair wages of workers, and that they had a power collectively if they could utilize that power in talking to the ownership of the company with respect to the working conditions, with with respect to wages, with respect to hours that they worked. And they would gather themselves to not, not engage in strikes, but at that particular moment to just discuss a work stoppage. And that was considered a boy that was at that particular point was considered an activity that would disrupt the business. And so Alabama and other states enacted statutes that would discourage that particular organizing. And it stayed on the books up until the time that the Montgomery Improvement Association came into being. And in, and in law school, it's not something that we actually focused on. We, we do recall cases that dealt with the, the labor aspects, but we learned it mostly in the context of its aftermath around the, the imposition of the New Deal and FDR's focus on jumpstarting the, the economy and we, we, in the context of the National Labor Relations Board. That's basically what our our focus of it was on in law school, we didn't get the origins of it from that particular standpoint. I guess our law professors figured we had taken a history course in college and knew that part. Yeah. Or, remem- or remembered it. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Well, uh, I mean, you know, one thing that, you know, struck me about this is that, uh, you know, bo- both of these cases, and, and especially the boycotting case, I mean, that that's sort of... Um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Derek, but that that was sort of the event that I think uh, sort of put uh, Martin Luther King on more of a national scene as far as a, as a figure and a leader in the civil rights movement. But he was only 26 years old uh, at this time. And then he's, you know, getting charged with with this crime and, you know, among other cases uh, that were eventually brought. I mean, he was he was just very young, not only when he was leading these movements, but when he was also, you know, being. Um, um, attack. And I, sh- I guess I should say that as a part of this, and I, it wasn't part of the case, but at the same time, his house was bombed uh, as part of the boycott. That's right. You're right. He, he's very young. He's 26 years old. Uh, he's the pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, which if you've ever been to Montgomery, sits right across the street from Alabama State Capitol. Uh, he is virtually new to Montgomery. But the issue that gave rise to the boycott was not new. It was something that was rooted in the racially segregated South and the racially segregated Montgomery at that particular moment. 
There was a group called the Women's Political Council started by a woman named Joanne Robinson, and they had for a, a few years prior to that begun to try to change the condition and the treatment that Black people were experiencing when riding the bus. Four days after the Brown versus Board of Education decision, which, it set, which was on May 17, 1954, May 21st, 1954, Joanne Robinson meets with city officials to try to get them to change some of the conditions that black people were experiencing on the buses. Horrific this treatment that included, that ranged from verbal insults right on to, right, right on to physical assaults and even in some instances death. At the, at the hands of bus drivers and police officials. Uh, Fred Gray, who ultimately became the lawyer in, the, in handling the case for Dr. King, was himself a native of, of, of Montgomery. And he said earlier that his goal was to finish Alabama State, go on to law school, not apply to, not apply to the University of Alabama because they knew he wouldn't admit him, finish law school, come back to Alabama and destroy everything segregated he could, he could find. <laughs> Yeah. Fred Gray was 25 years old when all of this started. And so very much, very young. The morning of December 1st, the afternoon of December 1st, this is when Rosa Parks refuses to relinquish her, her seat in, to give it to a white man. She is arrested, charged with violating the Montgomery City Ordinance. Um, when she is arrested, E.D. Nixon, who is at, in Montgomery, one of the more venerable figures with respect to the NAACP, she, he is contacted by Joanne Robinson, who was herself contacted by Fred Gray to let him know that Mrs. Parks had been arrested. Uh, Nixon tells her, listen, you have the plans that you've been talking about them. Go ahead, put them in motion. She contacts her organization, the, the representatives of her organization, and they plan at that particular moment a one-day boycott, which was to take place Monday, December 5th. Over at the Holt Street Baptist Church, which was pastored by Ralph David Abernathy, they had planned to have a, a, a strategy meeting that day to let people know what was going to happen uh, for that one day boycott on Monday. Uh, Joanne Robinson and Fred Gray are sitting in Ms. Robinson's living room trying to figure out, well, who's going to be the person that's going to sort of lead this particular effort? Who's going to be the spokesperson? As Fred Gray says, you need someone who can speak because not everybody can talk. Mm -hmm. They had to decide between whether the leader would be E.D. Nixon or a gentleman by the name of Rufus Lewis. Mr. Lewis was also a leader at that particular moment. He owned a nightclub called the Citizens Club. And his requirements for membership for black people that you had to express an interest in, show proof that you've made an effort to be registered to vote. And he was interested in getting people to vote who would be that could be held accountable to the interest of the black community. Well, Mr. Nixon had one faction, Mr. Lewis had another faction, and Joanne Robinson told Fred Gray, why don't we get my pastor, because she was a member of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He hadn't been here long, he hasn't ruffled any feathers, he mm -hmm. has no allegiances to any particular group, uh, black or white, and she said the one thing he can do is he can move people with words 
Fred Gray says that's the person we need. He talks to E.D. Nixon. Unknown to Dr. King, when they have the meeting at that, that particular afternoon, they are going to form the Montgomery Improvement Association. Nixon tells King, we want to have it. We want to have it this evening. We want you to be to be the leader. He says, Brother Nixon, let me think about that. <clears throat> he takes some time and he calls him back and says, okay. I'll do it. He says, good, because that's what was going to happen anyway. <laughs> right, that, right. that leader that way. So almost by accident, by happenstance, this is thrust upon him. And he has about four hours to craft a statement to explain to the people not only what was about to happen, but to sort of get them to embrace the Montgomery Improvement Association as the apparatus through which this event was going to be conducted, and then also accept him as the representative of, very, of really a movement a, of, of an action that he didn't start. Right. <laughs> the people started it. So he had to get them to, to, to embrace that. And and based on how the movement began to conduct itself over the ensuing 382 days, he was, as you point out, Steve, vaulted into the national limelight from that almost accidental incident. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny because I read I read somewhere when they were you know talking about who was going to be their leader that one of the reasons why they chose uh, Dr. King is because if it all didn't work out and he ended up losing his job, the, he had enough connection through his his father and others that he could probably get a job somewhere else. I thought that was uh, that was interesting yes. that they uh, they had that kind of foresight about the uh, about the entire operation. Um, Derek, can you just talk quickly about, I think, the sanitized version that people learn about the, the, the buses in that situation in Montgomery was just about where African-American people were allowed to sit. And as you mentioned, there was a lot more happening the way that they um, were being treated by bus drivers, the sort of physical things that were happening to them, which you touched on. And I'm just wondering if you can go into a little um, bit more detail about what was driving people to, to this point of taking this action. It was the treatment that Black passengers were experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, when you read the transcripts, you will hear that some people took the stand and talked about the name calling, the verbal insults, uh, racial epithets that were hurled at them. You'll hear some, you'll read that some people talked about the, the, the just inhuman treatment uh, that was given to, that was, that was, that was bestowed upon black people, treating them as one of the witnesses said, treating us not like we're human, but like we're animals. Um, pregnant woman, a gentleman and his pregnant wife were on the bus one afternoon. And because they were, they were seated in the whites only section at a particular moment, by mistake, they didn't they just simply didn't see or know where the barrier was. Uh, the pregnant woman was, was actually physically removed from the bus by the bus driver. There was one instance where a woman was on the bus with her husband who was blind, who was a veteran of, 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 the, of World War II. She was taken, they were about to go to the Veterans Administration's Hospital for his treatment. And the, 
at when she rang the bell for them to get off, the bus driver pretended he did not hear it. She rang it again. That must have annoyed him uh, somehow in that to be reminded that they needed to get off. And the, the husband got his foot caught in the door. And when he got his foot caught in the door, the, the wife is trying to extricate him. And she finally does. And she takes him across the, down, across the street to the shop of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a white business owner. She flags down the bus to let him know what has happened. And his response to her was, I don't even remember seeing you on the bus. Joanne Robinson talks of issues of women being pulled from the bus and mercilessly beaten. Uh, she also talks of it. She spoke of an incident where a gentleman was actually killed because of right. his refusal to leave mm -hmm. the, the, the segregated seating. And so the instances of verbal, physical abuse, and in, in some instances, even death that went unmet, that, that was not met with any degree of sensitivity, empathy, and certainly not correction. Mm -hmm. That was the mood that galvanized the community. They all had the shared experience of being treated without dignity. Yeah. And that was that was the thing that was that that drove them more than anything else. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, it, as you mentioned earlier, Yvonne, you know, what we're taught in school. I mean, you know, when we're taught about this in school, at least the way I was taught is you basically it was all about, you know, where you sat on the bus. And that certainly was a part of it. But I, I think probably, you know, what was you know, a, a bigger issue was the, this, you know, just this terrible treatment and, you know, people, you know, getting uh, injured, people, you know, uh, one or two people actually getting killed. Um, you know, I, I read a story about a woman who, um, you know, pays her fare, the, uh, you know, bus driver, you know, calls her a name that I won't repeat and tells her to, to go out, go out and get in the back door of the bus. And when she does that, he just takes off and leaves her and, and sort of just that repeated uh, treatment. And so that's just something that, you know, at least, uh, you know, I, I don't remember hearing about in, in understanding what was going on with the Montgomery uh, busing system and why this was such a big issue uh, uh, as I grew up. And, and I did notice that when they, um, we, we got to read part of uh, Dr. King's transcript of his testimony and that when they had sort of going back and forth of, demands of what they wanted their first demand was just to be treated with with uh courteousness i mean just to be you know treated nicely and, and that and, harkens back to december yeah. 8th 1955 remember i told you on december 5th was just was supposed to be just a one-day boycott that thursday representatives from the montgomery improvement association met with commissioner sellers mayor gale and they had three requests Steve, you touched on one. The very first one was courteous treatment. Now, think about it. We, we, you're, there's a group of people who are, live day to day under the legal policy of saying that you have to sit here on this at, at this part on the bus. And even if your section is full and there are all these seats sitting up front, you are still precluded from sitting there. And the oddity of that being a law was not the first thing on the minds of the people in that meeting. 
the first thing on their minds was courteous mm -hmm. treatment, which is totally within the power of the bus company to grant. The second thing they asked for was Negro drivers on Negro routes. They just figured, okay, that would enhance the ability for courtesy to be extended because right. most of the passengers who are riding who are black are being picked up in black neighborhoods to go to work in white neighborhoods. And so at least what was thought, the thought process was that at least at the beginning and the end of the workday, passengers would be able to experience some kind of decent treatment. And the last thing they asked for was first come, first serve, first come, first serve seating, but only if, only in the instance when the seating reserved for black passengers had become full, then it's a first come, first serve seating basis. At no point was there a direct challenge to the law itself, but it is striking that the first two requests were about dignity and, yeah. and, 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 treat, and being <laughs> treated like a human being. Well, and it really makes you understand that when Rosa Parks took the stand and, and didn't get up out of her seat that, you know, it, it, it wasn't like she was thinking she might just get a ticket or get arrested. I mean, she was putting her life at risk. I mean, who knew what they were going to do um, when she refused to get up because other people had been treated uh, much worse, much worse. And, and, and Rosa's decision, Mrs. Park's decision to do it on December 1st is should be understood and situated in the fact that she wasn't the first one to do it. She was not she was not the first one to do it in the nation. She was also not the first one to do it in Alabama. She's not the first one to, to do to take that act, even in Montgomery. In March of 1955, Claudette Colvin had refused to give up her seat. Ironically, Claudette Colvin was supposed to be initially the person who was going to be the one who would test that particular situation. But she was, she eventually became an unwed 15 year old mother and they thought that she was not the appropriate plaintiff mm -hmm. to challenge that aspect. April of 1955, one month later, Aurelia Browder was arrested and charged with violating that city ordinance. ordinance. October, Susie McDonald and Mary Louise Smith did the same thing. So you've had, you had a series of instances from March to October where women in Montgomery, and surprisingly it was women who were putting themselves in harm's way. There were a number of very well-spoken and uh, very involved men in leadership positions in Montgomery, but at that particular moment, the people who were taking the risk were women. And it was quite possibly due to the fact that it was more women who were experiencing the levels of indignity that we saw. And so by the time we get to December 1st, Mrs. Parks, as she, as she mentioned after her arrest, she just felt that she couldn't do it. She just couldn't take it any longer. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just striking that, you know, in connection with the, the Montgomery Improvement Association and what they were asking for, 
none, none of the treatment that they were experiencing was okay, obviously, but what they were asking for was really not that much, you know? And I mean, to, to not even really be able to get that and, and then to also not be able to boycott a system that where they're being treated like that is just, it's just crazy. <laughs> it's crazy in one respect, but but almost predictable in another. Mm. What actual power did the black community have at that particular moment? There were no black elected officials that could that could they could rally behind their cause. Certainly, there were no laws that they could point to mm. that seemed to suggest that would say that this was unfair treatment. Uh, they had no officials who worked high up in the in the Montgomery bus company. Certainly, there was no African-American general manager of the Montgomery city lines. And so when Jack Crenshaw was in that meeting on December 8th, Mr. Crenshaw was the counsel for the Montgomery city lines. It was basically his lead as egged on by Mayor Sellers, Mayor Gale and Commissioner Sellers to reject completely each and every request that was made by the association. The funny thing about that, Dr. King mentions later on in his writings that he left that meeting struck by how little he knew of his own rights to demand certain things. Mm. And he wrote about himself, he said, and in, using himself as the backdrop, but also speaking to himself about the collective black community. He wrote that nothing is going to happen until we, until I squeeze every drop of slave out of me. That was the mm -hmm. sense he had leaving that meeting. Um, and so that is, that's also an interesting point to note the the, to, to paint the fuller picture as you were speaking at the beginning, Yvonne, about the human being himself. He's walking into this meeting after having been chosen to represent this group of people. Mm -hmm. And he himself is feeling inadequate in the context of, I don't even know what I should be asking for in this meeting. Mm -hmm. And to be, but at the, by the same token, to be denied the most basic thing. I'm not exactly certain in his own mind which, which one he felt more outraged about. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digital law marketing Com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So 
If you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Uh, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive, as you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. So in the trial, uh, which lasted four days, um, they, I think the state called 27 witnesses mostly, um, and I think most of them on cross-examination. I mean, you know, it was mostly... Uh, a lot of other members of the uh, uh, Montgomery Improvement Association, basically to try and prove that Martin Luther King was the leader and, and basically encouraging people to, uh, to boycott. They all, uh, at least all of those witnesses all pushed back against that notion that he was, uh, you know, he, he was the president of the uh, Montgomery Improvement Association. But as far as the leader of the boycott, that um, that, that was basically left to, as I said before, the conscience of the of the community. Um, although they, you know, they did set up, uh, one of the things I, they set up a carpooling service and had about 20 drivers that would carpool people to work. So, um, and then as far as the, you know, the defense of the case, it was mostly, um, the injustice as we've, as we've just discussed about the, um, uh, the, the bus situation in order to come under this legal exception of uh, just cause or legal excuse, but ultimately the judge, uh, found against Dr. King and and uh, and imposed a five hundred dollar fine. Um, there's another case that that ties into this, and I wanted to have oh, go ahead, Yvonne. Well, I just want, and, and maybe because this will lead us into into the other case, but but to the extent we haven't really talked about it all already, I was curious, Derek, your thoughts on you know at this point as young as Dr. King is, and as you mentioned in his writings afterwards, what he says about this experience and how, you know, what he needed to learn or how he needed to grow from it. When he's, when he's targeted as the defendant in this case, is it, was it more about, okay, they're looking at who they perceive as the, the leader of the, of the Montgomery Improvement Association. And so that was kind of the obvious pick or, or how much was factoring in the fact that they were seeing in him, what other people were seeing in him of being the, of basically his, his potential, um, to the extent it hadn't already manifested about being such an influential and powerful leader of an important movement. I'm going to think it's a combination of both. And I'm thinking that's, that's probably going to be picked up at that December 8th meeting I talked about. Remember I mentioned that Joanne Robinson had already back in 1954 started to meet with the city officials about changing the treatment uh, of, of the, on the bus, on the bus situation. But the city officials response to this lone black woman who's an educator at Alabama A&M College, uh, 
talking about and talking for other domestic black women who are domestic workers. How much credence is the, are the city officials going to lend to her with respect to the ability to command the attention of the larger black community? But on December 8th, you now have this group, the Montgomery Improvement Association that comes virtually out of nowhere and the person sitting across the table from the white city officials is this young minister who has all of a sudden descended upon the fair city of Montgomery and daring to suggest that we, one, entertain them as an audience, and two, take seriously the requests that they're, that they're making. But by the same token, this young man is sitting in front of us who is a minister of one of the most storied congregations in the city of Montgomery, uh, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, prior to Dr. King becoming the pastor, was led by a gentleman named Vernon Johns, who, along with E.D. Nixon, had fortified the Black community around the around issues uh, that were that were being discussed by the NAACP. And so now you have this young man sitting here and with a seeming difference than many of the other ministers that had that 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 the, that the city was familiar with and so it i would i would think Yvonne, that at that particular moment there is an inkling that something what that something is we don't know but something all of a sudden even though it's not all of a sudden right. something all of a sudden is different and what is the common denominator to the different summon something? It seems to be the arrival of this Martin Luther King Jr. fellow. If we can just remove this person from the equation, things can go back to normal. Things can go back to the way they were. And so I think it's just a combination of all of that and, 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 and just my speculation. Nothing's been written from a, from a scholarly standpoint. I think, it, I think it begins on that December 8th meeting. I wonder what would have happened if Dr. King had in fact had an appreciation of what rights were actually his and began and actually began to quote them from from the Constitution or things of that particular mm. nature, as opposed to just asking for courteous treatment. I wonder what the response to him would yeah. have been at that particular moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, well, Derek, I wanted to make sure you, you, off air, you had mentioned the case called uh, Browder versus Gale um, that uh, went up to the Supreme Court and, ha and that also had to do with the uh, Montgomery Improvement Association and the boycott. Tell us a little bit about that case. Now, now Browder is filed February 1st, 1956. Fred Gray, Robert Carter from the NAACP is involved in this case, and so is Arthur Shores. Arthur Shores is one of the, the long-standing leading black lawyers in, in, Mon in Alabama at that particular moment. Robert Carter had tried to become involved in the case, the anti-boycott case against Dr. King, but Judge Carter said that the Montgomery Improvement Association was adequately represented, didn't need his involvement, but Robert Carter did become a part of the Browder versus Gale case. This case, unlike the actions on the defense that 
Mr. Gray and others mounted in, in defending Dr. King personally, this case, Browder versus Gale, actually directly attacked the constitutionality of the Montgomery law that required segregation on the bus. It was filed in federal court. And of course, King versus state is a state court matter. And so they were being conducted almost side by side. There were some compliments from one case to the other. Uh, Browder versus Gale, the named plaintiff, Aurelia Browder, as I mentioned, she refused to relinquish her, her seat on October 1st, on Octo in October of 1955. And the other plaintiffs were Claudette Colvin, Susie McDonald, and Mary Louise Smith. And in a twist of irony, Mrs. Parks was not a part of the case that ultimately caused the, the legal invalidation of the segregation laws, mm. but Mrs. Parks' refusal to relinquish her seat is what jump-started everything. So right. it's an interesting, interesting historical dichotomy there. Got it. Okay. I don't think I realized that. So I always learn stuff when Derek's on the show. You guys, you guys make exactly. me learn more than I that, that, that make, make me learn more. So I appreciate it. I appreciate so, it. So, the, so this challenge, though, had they had they been charged criminally or uh, had, had Aurelia Browder and Claudette Colvin, had they been charged with something? I, I, Gail, they had been charged with the okay. same statute, violated the same statute that Rosa Parks did. Okay. And they brought a class action suit up on their behalf and for all others who were similarly situated in that particular context. So yes, they had been charged criminally. Okay. And then what, what ultimately happened in the Supreme Court on that case? Well, the Fifth Circuit in June of 1956, relying upon its interpretation of Brown versus Board of Education, found that the segregation laws of Montgomery with respect to segregated seating on buses was, was un unconstitutional. Judge Richard Taylor Reeves, uh, Judge Frank Johnson, Frank, Judge Frank Johnson had only been appointed to the bench uh, shortly before, that was, this was actually his first major case. He had been appointed to the bench in, middle, in, in October of 1955. And Judge Seaborn Judge, um, Lynn were the three judge panel for this case, and that case was decided two to one uh, in June of 56 in, in outlawing, as I mentioned, the segregation laws in Montgomery. November 23rd, I think it was November 23rd of 56, the Supreme Court, in a unanimous uh, uh, per curiam opinion, rejected the appeal of the city, virtually keeping intact the ruling of the Fifth Circuit. And it was that decision that ultimately put the death nail in, 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 in the segregated seating, um, in Montgomery. Okay. I, I never really understood that. That I, I, I kind of thought that, uh, after, you know, the year long boycott that that had sort of broken the back of the, uh, of Montgomery, the, uh, Montgomery bus, um, is it uh, Montgomery city lines, but, um, and as you mentioned that that's exactly why our podcast loves to emphasize right. the work that lawyers have done, have done that work of lawyers and judges, the court system, because popular historical memory does exactly that. There was a Montgomery bus boycott. It lasts 382 days. And finally the city and the bus company were worn down and they gave in and Oh, hallelujah everybody can sit wherever they want to sit. No, didn't it didn't happen like that. No one, no city officials, the bus company, no one actually 
did anything in response to changing their behavior until the imprimatur of the law was handed down. And that's why we like to focus on, on the work that lawyers and judges have done. Just like on the Great yeah. Trials podcast, you let people know of the work that is actually taking place to, it, to, to make certain that just results are the outcome when, when we find that some wrong, some inequity is taking place. Yeah. Well, um, you know, that's, that, that's certainly, uh, you know, I mean, tremendous legal work. And again, as we, as you've just said that, um, you know, the impact that lawyers can have, uh, and courageous citizens, you know, willing to stand up against unjust laws. Um, the other case that we mentioned at the beginning was also the state of Alabama versus, uh, uh Martin Luther King Jr. And as I said, it involved, uh, two counts of uh, felony perjury against Dr. King. And the basis of the perjury was that he had filled out tax returns in 1956 and 1958 that um, they were alleging had underreported uh, money that he had received from both the Montgomery Improvement Association and then the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And, um, and that case was tried in front of a jury. Um, and I believe it involved essentially the same legal team uh, that, that, that we've been talking about. I, I know that, uh, that Fred Gray and, and, and Mr. Shores were involved uh, in, in that defense as well. Um, interestingly, in that case, you know, so as, I, as I mentioned, that was tried to a jury, an all-white jury, and um, the, it he was found not guilty. And there's a lot of uh, question. Nobody ever talked to the jurors to find out exactly why they found him not guilty. And so there's been a lot of speculation about it. But, uh, but one of the things I thought, and it just shows, you know, from a trial lawyer standpoint, the power of cross-examination is that the, um, when they put the, um, the tax examiner on the stand, um, he admitted that um, he had found no evidence of any fraud couldn't say exactly what was the income of Dr. King and couldn't, um, you know, say that he had misrepresented or, or underreported any income from either um, the Montgomery Improvement Association or Southern Christian Leadership. And, and ultimately, it came out that he had been pressured by the higher ups. And, and um, uh, as I said before, uh, uh, the governor, uh, John Patterson, who, who sort of made it his goal to, uh, you know, uh, um, keep segregation and to strike down the civil rights movement, uh, had pressured, uh, pressured them into pushing this, um, these perjury charges. Um, yeah, I mean, talk about that a little bit, Derek, as far as, you know, just, I mean, I, I mean, I, obviously the, you know, getting found not guilty was a tremendous, you know, victory back in 1960, but, uh, but also just that among the number of other, um, you know, legal challenges that, that Dr. King had to go through, as well as others, not just Dr. King, but, but since he was on the forefront, had to go through in pushing forward the civil rights movement. You know, Steve, that, that case is really just a continuation of attempting to discredit Dr. King. As we discussed earlier, the only thing that's different now is this factor and if this factor can be removed. You alluded to it in, that, in, in, the, in the first trial there that the, strategy, the, the prosecution's case in chief was simply to show 
that the Montgomery Improvement Association controlled and governed this boycott. And this gentleman, Martin Luther King Jr. was its leader and so therefore he must be responsible. When that case ultimately did not accomplish the objective and the objective being to remove him from the aspect of being the recognized leader, then we've got to continue. There has to be a continuation of that particular effort. And as you mentioned, the tax examiner said he's being pressured to offer this particular testimony. Uh, I think it's a testament to the, to the jury system itself. Almost you have 12 ordinary citizens who are looking here and going, okay, this is not right. I, whatever my views may be on black white relations, whatever my views are on the issue of segregation, if it appears that the apparatus of government is going to be used and can be used to go after a particular citizen, as 12 ordinary citizens, I'm sitting here thinking, at what point is that apparatus going to point, it, point itself at me? And so I'm going to have to stop it at this particular moment and pay close attention to the testimony that's sitting in front of me and say, no, that part, that's just a little too far. Um, I'm, I'm okay with you as far as your segregated laws, but using the apparatus of government to bring down one individual because you are you find the views being expressed by the individual to be unpleasant to your sound, to your ear, then at what point will that be directed at me? And so we find we find them not guilty at that point. But I do think it's just a and just an evolution and a continued effort to remove him as the galvanizing force, uh, so to speak, of what was happening in at Montgomery at that particular moment and how that was now spreading, not only it throughout the state, not only throughout the South, but now beginning to take hold into the consciousness of the nation itself. And so this has to be, this has to be quelled and this is the means by which we will do it. That those means also include, as you mentioned earlier, Steve, uh, violence. His home is bombed in January. Uh, that is where he has his famous uh, midnight prayer, where he it says he, he goes to his kitchen uh, and, he, and he prays and he tells God, I am down here doing the work you have asked me to do. And it is in that moment after that prayer that he finds for the first time, certainly in his in his. Um, 13 year public ministry. It wasn't the last time, but that was the first time that he found the will to continue. And this case where he is accused of perjury, where he's accused of mishandling funds is not the first time that, that happened. And, and so it's, again, it's just part of that decision to remove him as the visible figure comes it, it you have to think about it even when the, when the, when he was the grand jury indictment of the first case they say we are committed to segregation by custom and by law and we intend to maintain it that's the words of the grand jury yeah in the first case and so that you clearly can't be surprised when high, when officials pressure the tax examiner you can't be surprised 
that there's violence uh, toward in, towards him and others in that particular aspect because the grand jury using the apparatus and the weight of the law is telling you that that's what we're using this for to actually maintain this way of life and he is disturbing that he is he is interrupting that and this is the beginning of him being characterized as an outsider an agitator no so go you go, no you go ahead steve I was just going to say, you know, I think, you know, one thing that's, you know, we talk about this, that, that you know, there is these multiple attacks, you know, just trying to to take him down. I mean, we're, we're just focusing on Alabama here. I mean, he was also facing criminal charges in other cases in Georgia, in Tennessee, uh, the city of Memphis case. I mean, so, you, you know, to accomplish what he did in his short life, uh, no, with all of the obstacles he was going up against, you know, including, you know, real, uh, real life consequences of, of going to jail. Um, I mean, he, he, it, it's just amazing, uh, you know, how he got by day to day. At live, I'm sorry, go ahead, Levon. No, no, you go ahead. Living day to day with this feeling internally that he's not up to the task. He writes about this frequently that he is inadequate for the call that he perceives that has been placed on him, doing the best that he can with that, living day to day with, with, with the threat of death, living and where that threat of death could happen at any particular moment. Andy Young is always fond of saying that for, as a relaxing exercise, if you will, he would have each of his lieutenants preach his eulogy. Oh, this is a relaxing exercise. Wow. They would, they would alternate, you know, alternatively make fun and light of their time <laughs> with him and what they would say in, in that particular aspect. This was a method that he would use to be comfortable, if you will, with having to confront the possibility of death at any moment on any given day to be characterized in the media and with other officials in other states, again, as the outsider, as the agitator, as someone who is stirring up, as, as they would say, stirring up the good niggers. The, the relationship between blacks and whites have be, before this gentleman's arrival, before this organization's arrival were fairly harmonious. There were no complaints by black people in these particular areas. They were fine with conditions as they were until all of a sudden this comes along and to live with that particular characterization. To combine that, join that with the sentiment among black people in, certain, in the communities that he will come in, you and, the, you and your group, at, later on he formed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, you and the SCLC will come in and grab a whole lot of media attention and then after that's done, you will leave and we're still left with the problem in that particular regard. Having to deal with the growing impatience of the younger younger aspect of the society that these direct actions aren't making change fast enough. 
having to contend with constant criticism of his chosen methodology and philosophy of nonviolence. It is impossible to imagine how one human soul conducts himself in that environment with those weighty burdens imposed upon you. And then with all of that, finding yourself unable to let this go. Despite all of the things I just mentioned, I still cannot let this go. Um, when he gave the speech, the night of the Montgomery, the mass meeting on, on December 5th, he used an interesting phrase where he talked about if we are wrong, then the Supreme Court is wrong. If we are wrong, then God Almighty is wrong. Those two phrases have always stuck with me because, Yvonne, I'm a fan of reading the history of people right before they become known for what they became known for and right before their death. Those two pieces about them are very intriguing. And in the couple of years before Dr. King came to Montgomery, he had been writing about some certain things. And the call to the ministry is something that he says he didn't have a, a uh, um, blinding light Paul experience. He was going to be a minister because he knew he was going to be one. His father was a minister. His grandfather was a minister. The ministry was in his family. So he knew this is what he was going to do. But he wrote that if he was going to do it, it would have to be done a certain way, that it would have to speak to the ongoing evils that are represented in the system of segregation. And understand that he, he's born and raised in Atlanta to a quote unquote middle class environment. Uh, at the time that he's when Gone with the Wind premieres in Atlanta, he and his brother uh, uh, adorn blackface and sing of when at the premiere, and so he's got a he's got an interesting understanding of this whole thing. But it, as he's accepting his ministry, he is writing that the ministry has to be done another way. And it, strikingly, he says, because if I am wrong, then God Almighty is wrong. Mm -hmm. And so for him to actually use that same phrase when he is called, it's, it's as if as though he is is, is, is summoning the thoughts that he had had two and three years earlier to tell people Remember, I said he's now got to get the people to accept him as the leader of their of their movement. And one phrase that he uses is to tell them that if we are wrong, then God Almighty is wrong. But he uses that because he has told himself that if I'm wrong, then God Almighty is wrong. Mm -hmm. And so it's this thing that he with all that he's experiencing, he still cannot let this thing go. It's an amazing, amazing study. He and Lincoln both are amazing studies in this aspect because they come to their leadership utilizing their shortcomings 
in the context of how they view the society's shortcomings and how they can grow out of them. That's the, that's a very unique thing about both of them. Um, and they were both masters at understanding their shortcomings and being able to not condemn themselves for their shortcomings, understanding what they were and how to utilize them. It, 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 it made it a little easier for them not to condemn society for its shortcomings and show them how to come out of it. And it made it a little easier to deal with those shortcomings when they presented themselves, even directed at them. Yeah, well, I, what I was gonna, um, what I was mentioning earlier is, is kind of touching on what you just said, Derek, is, is, is the contrast. One of the things that was so surprising to me getting ready for today's episode, and I'm not sure if it should have been or not, is that you contrast this extraordinary individual and this, this historic time and these landmark cases. And when, and, and when what most people know about them is the ultimate outcome of these cases. Um, but one of the things that was striking to me and reminded me almost of a normal episode we would do, Steve, is that when you read the excerpts of like the transcripts of just testimony during these cases mm -hmm. of yeah. how normal it is, like of how much it is like the transcripts that we would read now, you know, I don't know what I was expecting, but it's just interesting that when you read them, the, the way the examinations go and the directs and the crosses and the test testimony and is, is so similar to just, you, you know, your run of the mill case that we would talk about on this show. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things I noticed in there, and it, it um, yeah, I think it was the, during the cross examination of Dr. King by the uh, by the solicitor, um, he uh, he throws out the fact that um, two of uh, Dr. King's lawyers, it was uh, uh, Fred Gray and um, the other one's name was uh, I got it written down, but now it's escaped me. Lang Langford, I think it was Charles Langford. Uh, Charles Langford were also members of the Montgomery Improvement Association. And uh, you could just see uh, the way a trial lawyer thinks that he was really doing that for no other purpose than just to throw, you know, uh, right. Martin Luther King's lawyers under the bus. I mean, you know, he there, there was no legal point he was trying to make there other than just making sure the judge knew, hey, these guys are part of the same thing over here, you know, and uh, it's right. Just, or the, or the way yeah. the way um, Dr. King answered the questions on direct versus the way he answered the questions right. on cross was just very what a well-prepared witness should do. But it was right. just so funny because I think I think of it is so important that I don't really expect any of it to look familiar, you know, yeah, or just yeah. kind of similar to what we would see now. So I just thought it was cool. Yes, yes. But in an odd way, Yvonne, that's what makes the reading of the transcripts all the more illuminating because they are not spectacular in the context of the application of procedure, uh, the development of trial strategy, the selection of witnesses, developing a theory of the case, how to call, which witnesses we're going to call, as you say, witness preparation. Um, these are extraordinary factual circumstances that bring us into the tribunal, uh, but it's comforting and sort of illuminating to realize that the application of these procedures 
the reliance upon the principles that we've learned are fairly ordinary. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly. Well, right. Yeah. Exactly. And 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 you know, and I, I think we've talked about this before that you know when you watch you know certainly lawyers you know some lawyers are better than others some are more prepared than others but at the end of the day I mean you know a lot of people are, are um, you know just regular people and they answer things regular ways but they happen to be put in extraordinary situations and they happen to handle them with courage and and things like that but um you know reading dr king and the way he you know spoke on at trial was he seemed like a regular guy you know and you know but but he's the same guy who you know gives, gives the i have a dream speech you know in front of uh 200,000 people or a million people at at the uh, at the mall so he's um you know, so it's just these these things when you read stuff like that, that, uh, you know, he, he seems seems like somebody you just sit and have a nice conversation with. Yeah, it is. It is an interesting dichotomy um, at the risk of sounding arrogant. I will. Place myself. I, I've, I've had that experience um, when you are making certain statements. Um, or whenever you make statements. You, you know who your audience actually is. And so sitting here in the witness box, my audience is this one judge who I am fairly certain is going to find me responsible for the charge that has been leveled against me. And so my responses are not designed to sway his opinion, but it is that record that is being put forth. And yeah. so I'm, I'm, he's, I'm, I'm very, he's mindful of what that record is. But at the moment that he's given the, I have a dream speech that my audience is totally different. Uh, I'm speaking to an, an eternal audience. Yeah. I'm speaking to the groups of people who have come before us, who have given their lives whose way of living has been diminished and never recognized. I'm speaking to the groups of people who haven't even been born yet so that they may have an opportunity to come into this world and view its possibilities in a way that is different than any of us could ever imagine. And that's, in a nutshell, some of the, that it's part of what we're doing even right now. We talk about the trial itself, and it becomes a recitation of the prosecution's case in chief. Here's a direct examination. There's a cross examination. Here's an objection by the defense because the judge seems to be letting in irrelevant <clears throat> testimony, and it's sustained or it's overruled. And then the defense puts on its case, and then there's summation. There is a verdict. There's a fine. There's an appeal. Someone misses the misses the uh, to misses the opportunity to, to timely make an appeal. Then it's thrown out, and we just have this very common conversation that lawyers might experience on any given day. But when we start to go into the, the background of the matter, the importance and significance of the occasion of the trial, we all understand that at some particular moment, that beyond the airing of this show, and that will probably outlive all three of us, somebody is going to find this. 
and we need to talk to them as well. We need to let them know that you have come into a profession that has a long history of embracing these challenges and insisting that society live up to its ideals. We are not shy about doing that as lawyers. We are not reluctant to engage that. And we are telling a group of, of lawyers who are not only have they not come into the profession, they have not come into being. We are laying a foundation for them to let them know that we imagine your practicing law in a way that none of us can even think of. But we are counting on you at this moment to come into the profession because there is a group of people in society who are going to begin to imagine how to be Americans in a way that no one has ever thought of, and they are going to need dedicated legal professionals to help them carve out the policies that will sustain that imagination. And that's why we're doing this. We, we got to get this episode in a time capsule. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was just saying, I mean, you know, uh, Derek, I, this is why I always love having you on the show. I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're so knowledgeable of, uh, of the history and, and of the legal side of it, but just inspiring, man. I mean, uh, you know, when we talk about why we're lawyers and why we do what we do. Um, so, uh, I just want to thank you for coming on the show, and I want to remind everybody that we've been talking to Derek Alexander Pope, who is the uh, president and founder of the Arc of Justice Institute and the host of Hidden Legal Figures podcast. And one thing I forgot to do at the beginning of the show is you can look him up and find him on onthearc.net or go to hiddenlegalfigures.com. But uh, Derek, thank you so much for your time, man. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Yvonne. Always a pleasure to be here. And again, tell your partner, I'm chasing that record. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Derek. We're, look, we're looking forward to number five. We'll, uh, Absolutely. We'll, we'll have to send you a cake or, or something. Exactly. <laughs> to, exactly. To go with it. <laughs> and, now, and now Yvonne's going to read a quote by Abraham Lincoln. Go. <laughs> <clears throat> um, actually, my throat's a little sore today. If we could just rain check, right. I, I can I can just envision uh, Abraham Lincoln saying exactly that, right? <laughs> All right, guys. Well, Derek, thank you again so much, and and, and thank you. Hope everybody had a uh, a great uh, Martin Luther King Day, and um, and you know, for all the lawyers listening, uh, just. It, not every day uh, feels like you're doing the most important work, but it all contributes, and uh, and and what lawyers do contributes to society. So um, stick with it and work hard. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, 
or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.